So Dr. Neil Anderson, I don't know if you ever heard of him, he's a Christian speaker and author, and he deals with all kinds of different things in his books. It has a lot to do with addictions, uh, spiritual warfare. He wrote books, The Bondage Breaker or Victory Over the Dark. This is one of my favorite books. Freedom from Addiction, Finding Freedom in Christ. He's also known, Neil Anderson, if you know anything about Neil Anderson, he's also known for the, known for the seven steps to freedom. It's a comprehensive seven-step process um, that helps Christians resolve the personal conflicts, spiritual conflicts in their lives. He's led hundreds of people through. He has seminars that teach others how to lead others through the seven steps to freedom. I actually went down to Long Island um, and went through that seminar to learn how to lead, read, uh, lead people through the seven steps to freedom. Each one of the seven steps is designed to deal with different aspects of conflict, whether it's idolatry or unresolved issues, um, dealing with ancestry uh, sins or sins of the past. And one time someone asked Dr. Neil Anderson, which one of the seven steps did he feel or did he see in his ministry that was most important? And without hesitation, Neil Anderson, Dr. Neil Anderson said, the number one ticket free to freedom was the issue of forgiveness. In fact, he said, in some cases, it was the only one. Maybe forgiveness is not an issue for you right now, this morning, but maybe you're here today and there's been anger and, and bitterness due to unforgiveness and it's controlling your life. But there's one thing I know for sure, that in this broken, jacked up, twisted world, every single one of us will have to deal with the subject of forgiveness. I'm celebrating my second annual 50th birthday come October. I'm stopping at 50. I don't know about everybody else. But I can tell you, forgiveness will be an issue one way or another. Like the guy who said, Lord, I, I have not hurt anyone. I have not sinned. I am not bitter. I'm not angry. I'm not resentful. But I'm getting out of bed in about two minutes. I need your help, Lord. Help me today. We all deal with forgiveness. Matthew 18. Let's turn there. Verse 21 through 35. It's the parable, maybe you've heard of it, of the unforgiven servant. You know, many times in Jesus' life, he taught in parables. Jesus would teach in parables, and that means he would take a story, uh, a familiar story, something that these people would be familiar about, whether it's a farmer or a sheep, they're familiar about that, and he would take that familiar story, and he would cast it alongside, that's what parable means, to cast alongside uh, a, a spiritual truth to help them to understand what he was trying to say. I think of that and I see that Jesus is looking in their eyes. And you know how you're talking to somebody and they're looking at you like, I have no idea. So Jesus would be thinking, okay, I'm going to have to teach a parable to get him to understand what I'm saying. And that's what the parables do. And the parable Jesus taught in Matthew 21, 18, 21, really begins from his teaching back in chapter 18, verse 1, the beginning of the chapter. Pastor Elder Scott uh, Hannay did a great job last week helping us to understand what chapter 18 is all about. Look at Matthew 18.1. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Scott said last week that, it, that uh, a Jewish culture was a person's rank, was very important. So here they are. They want to know where they fit in the kingdom. In fact, in Luke 9, they actually have an argument. There's a dispute among the disciples about who is the greatest we said last week, don't relate, uh, don't judge, but relate. You get a stack of photos, you know you're in one of them, right? Who are you looking for? The first one you're looking for, you. That's who you're looking for. You're looking where you are in that photo and how you look. That's just the way we are, right? Um, we want to be first, we want to take center stage as part of the sinful nature. Disciples were no different. So Jesus responds to the question, who is the greatest of the kingdom? Remember, he pulls a child. And he takes his little child and, and, and he says, be like that child, right? Scott said last week, there's a difference between childish and childlike. Childlike is dependency, it's faith, it's trust, it's humility, all humility like a child. And Jesus says in verse 4, if you want to be great, Peter, if you want to be great, the disciples, listen, be like this child. It's very simple. The greatest in the kingdom is a humble child, looks like a child. Then in verse 5, Jesus says, but woe to those who cause little one to sin and stumble. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. For those of you who think that the mafia started the cement boots 
thrown over the bridge, you're wrong. It's right here. It's in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is, is showing how deep we must reach to deal with sin. Whoa, your hand, your foot, cut it off. Your eye, pluck it out. It's rather to have no eyes, no feet, no hands, than go to hell. So deal with your sin. That's an approach. That's a serious approach to sin. But then interesting, Jesus goes to verse 12. We looked at that last week as well. He says, when there is someone wandering from the faith, when that one sheep wanders from the faith, when that one goes, that 99 is secure, but that one has gone astray, rejoice. Rejoice when they're found. So as Jesus moves into a very familiar passage on church discipline in verse 15, which people love to use, and, and it's, it's an important passage. But as Jesus moves to the, to the to church discipline in verse 15, we can be assured that one of the main purposes is the restoration of the wandering sinner. That's the context. Sin is really bad, woe, but restoration is really good. So in verse 15, the well-known passage, Jesus says to Peter's and to the others, listen, if someone sins against you, humbly go to the brother in private. Don't gossip. Don't talk behind their back. Go face to face. If he listens, you've won your brother. Notice it doesn't say you want to fight, you want an argument, and you're smarter than he. You won your brother. If he doesn't listen, humbly go, get to others. If he still doesn't listen, treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus is teaching, Peter, listen, all you guys, listen. Be humble as a child. Trust, dependency, humility. Be humble as a child. Rejoice in the restoration of the wandering sinner. Humbly, Peter, listen, humbly. Exercise church discipline for the purpose of restoration. You got it? Humble. Childlike restoration. You getting it? Obviously, he didn't. Verse 21. Then Peter came up to him. Like it went right over his head. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? The question not only reveals, the question not only reveals that Peter wanted to keep record, but I believe it revealed his heart, and Jesus saw the beginning of a merciless and unforgiving attitude in Peter. Now, you need to know that the rabbis in that day taught their disciples that you should forgive someone three times, and after that, withhold forgiveness. So Peter is looking in Jesus' eyes. He knows how kind and loving this person is. And he thinks, okay, three times, that's what everyone teaches, but you are loving and merciful. You're such a good Man, oh, all right, let me say three, let me double it, and then just add one. Seven. Good job. I mean, you can see the smile on his face. Three is what they teach. I'm doubling, I'm adding one, seven. And Jesus says, no, I, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or, or 70 times seven, depending on your translation. But the actual number is insignificant, is it not? Because Jesus was not telling Peter to broaden his number, to, 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 to actually add them and keep record. He was telling them not to keep record at all. No limit to the believer's willingness. So concerned was Jesus about Peter's attitude, the other's attitude, and their record keeping. So concerned was he that they would miss this vital and fundamental truth about humility, about restoration, about forgiveness. He tells them this parable. That's the context. 18 verse 21. Verse 23. Therefore, Peter, let me, let me, let me break this down to you, Peter. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. A king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The way they did it back then. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. 
Out of pity for him, the master and of that servant released him and forgave him the debts. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. Verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused. And he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And he went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. Verse 35 to close. Hold on. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from his heart. Hmm. So much straightforward. Not easy. Many times in my life I've hurt others deeply and sought forgiveness. Times in my life that I have been hurt deeply and needed to forgive others. One of the most difficult times was faced with my father, having to forgive him for the pain and suffering caused my family. I say that not to say I know exactly what you're feeling and what you're going through or what happened to you. I don't. Honestly, I don't. But I do know what it's like to be hurt. I do know what it's like to remain bitter. And I do know what it's like to be freed from the pain through forgiveness. Maybe there's someone here today that hurts you deeply and maybe words spoken, deeds done. Someone you love that's actually been entrusted to you. Trusted to care for you, but harmed you instead. A friend, a spouse, a parent, a teacher, a minister, church family, a co-worker. Forgiveness is not easy. It's not for the lighthearted. It takes courage. It takes courage. It takes time. But it's worth it. We're going to see this text through four questions. First question is, What's the foundation of forgiveness? What is the foundation of forgiveness? Jesus takes an ordinary situation, as I said, and throws it alongside truth, spiritual truth, trying to teach us something. And here Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven with a certain king who had slaves or servants, depending on your translation. New American Standard, slaves, NIV, ESV, servants. And the crux of the parable, the crux to understand the parable, is to know that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole, in exaggeration. I used to say, you know, uh, that, that I'm starving. My wife would be like, you could miss a meal. Or I've called you 5,000 times, you didn't answer your phone. She'd be like, uh, I see two missed calls. Well, it seemed like thousands to me. You know, we love to exaggerate, right? Jesus uses hyperbole to stress the main point of the parable. He's trying to press on his hearers the enormous contrast between the one servant who owed money to the king and the other servant who owed money to his fellow servant. That hyperbole, that contrast is what he's trying to press on. Verse 24, when the king began to settle with his servant, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, understand, talents was the largest coin in the Greek-speaking world, and 10,000 was the largest uh, word in the Greek vocabulary. Therefore, what Jesus is saying, there's this astronomical amount, and, and it's, it's very hard to translate. Uh, I read several commentaries. Some say millions, some say billions. I, I don't know if you know anyone has said the national debt, but somewhere a lot of money. To better understand this, if you worked all your life, you might earn 10 talents. Right? Lou, you owe me some money. What do I owe you? $100 trillion. Really? All right, I'll pay you back. Like, it's not going to happen, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. He's setting the servant's debt at such a height, at such an extreme, to show that this servant could never, ever, ever, never, ever, never, ever, ever, Repay it. Never, ever, ever hope to repay the debt. In fact, in verse 40, 26, when the servant falls on his knees and says, have patience with me, I will pay you back everything I owe. It's laughable. It's like, all right, Luke, a hundred trillion dollars you owe me? What do you need? A week? A year? A couple years? Like, no, 
uh, it's not going to happen. That's the point. So when Jesus continues the story, and in verse 28 and 29, he says the same servant who's been forgiven this astronomical amount of money finds a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii, which is like four or five months worth of wages, far less money, grabs him, chokes him, and tells him, you know, you pay me back. I'm not going to forgive you. All the other servants are thinking, that's why they got angry. Like, really? Are you kidding me? Are all that you have been forgiven? You treating your fellow servant that way? And add to insult, look at verse 29. It's the same phrase that the servant who's been forgiven much says to the other servant. Will get said to the from the other servant. Have patience with me. So I owe you ten thousand. Have patience with me, okay? And then uh, you owe me a little bit. Have patience. No. And he refuses and throws him in jail. Again, the point is simple, I believe, but hard to grasp with the heart. Why is it that we all want forgiveness? I don't see anyone praying. Lord, have justice on me today. We all want forgiveness, but we're so quick not to give it. There's probably a lot of reasons, but let me give you one. I think some of that has to do with we have a shallow view of our own sin. We're way too quick to see the faults of others, but not the dark places in our own hearts. I shared this story way back when, but I want to share it again. It's a great story. It teaches this truth. Malcolm... Malcolm Muggeridge, he was a British journalist who was an agnostic who turned Christian. And while he was in India, he taught in India a lot. Uh, he was a married man, faithful to his wife. But he struggled. He had this struggle within his own heart that no one knew. Uh, and he was a man of integrity, but he had this struggle of, of fantasizing about a relationship with another woman. And one day when he was India, when he was in India, he came out of his room one early morning and there, uh, was the waters, and he went down into the waters to get his morning swim. As he entered the water across the river, he saw a woman bathing, and his heart began to pound. She was alone, she was unclothed, and she was taking her morning bath. He decided that he would swim over to her. In his conscience, there was this raising, uh, a raging, don't do it, Malcolm, don't do it, don't go, don't do it. There was something else in his mind that continued to press him forward. He impulsively felt the allure of temptation. His heart began to pound. There was nobody around. No one would know. So he swam. And he swam and swam against the current of the water. And he swam and swam against the current of his mind. Nobody would sway him. And he swam as hard as he could. And when he got to the other side of the river, he got within a few feet from her. And he emerged from the water. And he got the shock of his life. There he stood looking into the eyes of a leper. The eroded nostrils and sunken eyes, blotches of white all over her skin. He says that for a moment he thought, what a wretched woman she is. But almost at the same moment, the devastating truth overwhelmed him. What a wretched man am I. The true foundation of true forgiveness, is the reality of this enormous debt we owe to God because of our sin. That's what's in our hearts. Something that we could never, ever repay. The gap is way too wide. And the deeper we allow God to expose our hearts, to expose the sinfulness of our hearts, the deeper we will realize the limitless grace of that forgiveness He has given to us. And the result will be we will forgive Others. Obviously, the servant who was forgiven 10,000 talents did not get the memo. He did not come to that conclusion. That's why the king said in verse 33, I have had mercy on you. I forgave you. Should you not have done the same? We are the servants who have been given, forgiven much. This vast and staggering amount, and God is the king who mercifully forgives. Peter, no matter how deep Peter no matter how deep the wounds, Peter, it cannot compare to the sin that you have committed against the Father, Peter, which the Father has freely forgiven you, your pride, your anger, your, your selfishness, your lust, your bitterness, your rebellion. Staggering amount. So, Peter, listen. Don't get caught up with keeping record. Having been forgiven much, please, Peter, listen. Practice 
freely forgiving others. C.J. Mahaney, in a little book, great book. If you don't have his book, I highly recommend it. It's a great book called The Cross-Centered Life. In it, he says, only those who are truly aware of their sin can truly cherish grace. That's a great quote. What is the foundation? The enormous amount of debt we owe. What is true forgiveness? Look at the parable again. Because the debt was owed and the servant knew it, and, and when time for him to give an account, he didn't blame, he didn't rationalize, he didn't make excuses. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. Verse 27, out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Let's stop for a moment, think about that. The king took pity, that's the word compassion. His heart went out to him. That's what it means. His heart went out and, and, and he saw the brokenness and he had compassion on him and forgave him the debt. Released him, it says. And that's where the heart of, of, of what forgiveness really means. The word forgiveness means to release, to send away, to let go. Releasing. So forgiveness is the letting go, the releasing of the debt. In the case of sin, it's the releasing of judgment. The releasing of vengeance. The releasing of holding a penalty owed to you for the wrong that has been committed against you. That's why when Jesus speaks of forgiveness in, in, in the Lord's Prayer, he talks about debts. The debts that's owed. When someone wrongs us, when someone wrongs me, when I wrong someone, there is an unquestionable and unavoidable sense that the wrongdoer owes me. Or I, or I owe them. The wrong has been accured. There's obligation, there's liability, there's a debt. And here's the thing, debts will be paid. The debt needs to be paid. It's, it's, you can miss this in the parable if you don't think it through. Right? The debt that was owed to the king did not go in thin air just because he said, I forgive you. The king graciously and with compassion absorbed the debt himself. He's out 10,000 talents. That's true forgiveness. Rather than making the one who owes you pay the debt, you yourselves pay the debt. So family, listen, forgiveness is first and foremost always, always, always substitutionary. Because someone must absorb the debt. If you come to my house and you smash my TV, if you come to my house and put a key down the side of my car, either you will pay me and the debt is canceled, or I will get a new TV and fix my car, and I will absorb the debt. But the debt's paid. Either you or by me. But someone will absorb the debt. When someone wrongs you and hurts you deeply, sins against you, what's the first response? Usually it's vengeance. It's, it's you owe me. Anyone who's caught, anyone, who, anyone who's been deeply wrong knows the propensity to make the other person pay back the debt. Sometimes we use hard words. Sometimes we we gossip. We are malicious. That's the way of just getting back the debt that's owed to us. We talk trash about them. We're hoping something happens to them. That's just, there's been a debt. You owe me, and I'm. that's a way for me to see you suffer so that this debt can be paid. And then the obligation is fulfilled. It's impossible to escape. There's been an injustice, and you want to be paid. And we have a choice to make. And, and, and really what we need to do is, you know, many times, family, listen to this. Many times the healing process begins with the choice to forgive. We forgive to heal, not heal to forgive. Okay? We forgive to heal, not heal, then forgive. If you're waiting for your heart to be perfectly right in order to forgive, you got it backwards. Forgiveness is part of the healing process. The king absorbed the debt and forgives the debt. He volitionally releases that person from that debt. That's what forgiveness is, releasing them, letting them off the hook, knowing that God will be God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Let God have his way. The king makes a conscious choice and deliberate course of action to release the servant from liability. Releases the servant from suffering punishment. So forgiveness, from according to this parable, so forgiveness means we resolve to live 
with the consequences of another person's wrongdoing. We absorb the debt, the cost, by bearing the consequences, requiring no payment for the unjust offense. Here's the truth. I'm here to tell you the truth. You will know this truth when you hear it. You and I will live with the consequences of another person's actions regardless of whether you forgive or not forgive. One is through forgiveness, releasing them, and the other is with getting even and holding on to the anger and the bitterness and it gets control of your life. They made you suffer, now it's time for you to suffer. Of course, the real problem is when we get caught into that vicious, bitter cycle and we can't let go, we become more like the enemy than we do of Christ. When we, when we refuse to hold on to bitterness, when we forgive and absorb the cost, and we refuse vengeance, and though you want it so bad, what do you feel? If you've been harmed and you've been hurt, what you feel when you release, you feel pain. There is suffering. There is, there is hurt. There is sacrifice. There's this absorption of the debt, and there's pain in your life by letting go. Dan Hamilton wrote a book on forgiveness. He talked about a girl he was going to marry, loved her, and then she got dumped him at the last minute. And she thought, well, I could find someone better. And he became very bitter. And he said he made a promise, though. He said, every time I saw her and wanted to claw her eyes out but didn't, every time I had an opportunity to run her down, talk smack to her friends, I didn't. Every time I had the temptation just to remember all the things she said, how she lied about all those things, I didn't. Every time I forgave her, and I did the practice of forgiveness, it hurt. It was painful. It was searing because I was absorbing the debt. Instead of making her pay, I was absorbing it, end quote. That's why forgiveness is always substitutionary. Always substitutionary. It also means, I think what Jesus is trying to say in verse 35, when he talks about facing the pain, forgiving from your heart, that we have to face the reality of the hurt and the pain. Allowing God to touch the emotional core is essential if you want to truly forgive and begin healing. Unfortunately, family, we live in, in a world, and we I don't know if we practice this from the pulpit or if this is part of the churches, don't be real. Don't talk about how much hurt and pain it hurts me because we can't talk about that stuff. You have to. You have to. Because how can you have closure if there's no disclosure. How can you have a healing without the revealing of your feelings? Forgiveness from the heart is God's way of putting an end to the vicious cycle of anger and bitterness. Letting go, releasing, absorbing, substitutionary from the heart. Now, I want to, before we move on, I want to give you just a couple of things what forgiveness is not. I run into this all the time. Forgiveness does not mean we tolerate sin. Forgiveness does not mean that we allow an offending party to habitually sin against us. Now, I don't want to read too much into this parable, but how this servant had come to owe this much money does not seem a whole, doesn't seem legit. But the king doesn't say, oh, keep up the good work. No, he says, there's an account. Today you give an account, you owe me this money. Forgiveness does not mean we violate justice. Forgiveness is not calling something broken and sinful and wicked good. You may say, well, I know that, but some people don't. It's not turning a blind eye. Sometimes we have to, in the process, put boundaries around our lives from keeping people to harm us. That's okay. You can still forgive and keep boundaries. So forgiveness does not mean just tolerating sin. Number two, forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. The king forgave him his debt. I don't expect the king to say, now I want you to be the financial executor of my kingdom. Like, I, no, stay away from the money. I forgive you. Stay over there. We got something else for you to do. We dig some holes or something. I'm not really sure. But trust is earned through a faithful track record. Forgiveness and trust may overlap at times, but it's a different issue. Forgiveness is not always the same as trust, not the same as trust. Third, forgiveness is not forgetting. When the Bible says God will forgive and, and our iniquity and our sins, he will remember our sins no more, does not mean he has amnesia. 
Man, dude, I forgot you cursed that guy out sleeping with your girlfriend. I forgot all that. You know, he doesn't like wake up and say, you know, I, I, it slipped my mind. That's not what it means. It means he will no longer hold it against us. It's been paid for by the cross, by the Calvary, on Jesus. Right? So he doesn't bring it up to our account any longer. You know when that takes place, when you, when, when you forgiven, it no longer has control over your life. I know, I know. Many of you heard this before. If you haven't, uh, I'll be surprised. Have you ever forgiven that person? I've forgiven them, but I have not forgot. I'm like, whoa, okay. <laughs> you haven't forgiven. Just so you know, just the attitude, the demeanor, I've forgiven them, but I will not forget. You know, it's like you're still, it's still controlling your life. You could say that if you want, but it's not forgetting. Lastly, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. That may be a shock to some of you. Without genuine repentance, there cannot be reconciliation. That's why in verse 15 of our passage, he said, if you go to your brother, he sinned against you, you confront him about his sin, he listens to you. That word listen means he's responded, he is, he's agreed, he has turned from that. You've gained your brother back. See, there's repentance, there's confession, there's reconciliation. But oftentimes people refuse to deal with their sin. Or the offending party has died. The abuse, the, the sin, the, the wrongdoing has happened and the person is gone. There can never be reconciliation. There still needs to be forgiveness. One can still absorb the debt, release the offending party from vengeance and choose not to require that person to pay you back by absorbing it yourself. See the difference? It's not the same as trust. It's not the same as reconciliation. It does not mean just forgetting. And it's not the same as trust, right? In the book called The Peacemaker, which I saw it in the library this morning. I was wandering around praying. There's a, it's called The Peacemaker. It's a great book. Ken Sandy, if you've never heard of it. He talks about how do, you, how do you deal with forgiveness and reconciliation. And he has a great, I think, a biblical principle in that book. He says in Mark eleven twenty five, the Bible, Jesus clearly says we must forgive everyone. Clear in Scripture. Then, he says in Luke 17 and Matthew 18, this passage, it talks about forgiving uh, when you confront and there's repentance, then there could be reconciliation. How do you deal with those two passages? He says, deal with it looking at Scripture as a two-fold process. I'm going to share with you because it was great. I, I learned, I read that book a long, long time ago. I never forgot it. He said, first, there is what is called positional forgiveness. You say, what is that? It's everything we've talked about. It, it's about Forgiving from your heart, choosing to forgive, uh, releasing the individual, uh, not looking for personal vengeance or retribution. It's positional forgiveness when you put yourself in the position, forgiving, putting yourself in the position of possible reconciliation when the other person has truly repented of their sins and wants to deal with what has happened. You're in the position. Your heart's staying tender. You're, you're praying for. You're, you're, you're going back and, and asking God, help me to forgive if that's the process you're in. But it's getting yourself in that position to when the other person finally does repent and deal with sin, there could be possible, and again, we need, we need counsel on this, but it makes it possible. Positional forgiveness. The next he says is transactional forgiveness. Where there is repentance and there is now the possibility of rebuilding the relationship that was destroyed by sin. When there is that, there can be a transaction that takes place when there's true, genuine repentance of sin. In fact, he says, in order to offer someone transactional forgiveness when there was no repentance, there has been no turning, no confession, uh, may be inappropriate because you may still have to confront the authorities may have to confront that person from their wrongdoing. And he says, think about it. Doesn't the Bible teach that? Didn't Jesus Christ go to the cross, die for our sins, and now God the Father is in the position of forgiving you and reconciling you to, to himself? But doesn't, doesn't a man, a woman, have to turn from their sin and embrace and the transaction to take place? So remember, substitutionary. Forgiveness is about absorbing the debt. It's always substitutionary. It means facing the hurt. It means releasing the party. You're in that position and waiting and praying. And if you're not sure, get a biblical counselor, maybe a pastor, one of the pastors here. We can help you see whether that's safe or not for you. It may or may not be. That's something we have to work through. But what are the consequences? I want to hit this uh, before we go to our last part. 
What are the consequences of an unforgiving heart? Let's be honest, uh, folks. Verse 34 and 35 is troubling, right? The master calls the unforgiving servant, tells him that because he should have mercy on him, but he didn't. Verse 34, he gets angry. His master delivered him to the jailers. If you have a New American Standard, it is the word torturers. That's even, I think, a better translation. One who applies torture. So he gets so angry, he turns him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Verse 35, tough verse. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from his heart. You know, I realize it says brother there, but the principle of forgiveness remains the same. We see the king delivering the ungrateful servant to the torturers. Now, if that was the only parable we had in all of Scripture... It would teach us that God only forgives you when you forgive others. Or that God awaits, stands back and sees how you work in this out, whether you get saved or not. That you're working somehow toward your salvation. If you forgive, then God will save you. That's the way you could read that text. In fact, Matthew 25, if you know that very familiar passage, when Jesus uh, talks about you did not feed the, the hungry or take care of the sick. You do not shelter the homeless. Visit the prisoner. Therefore, go into eternal punishment. If that's all we had, we would say, serve the poor so you can be saved. But family, Scripture is abundant. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. No works can you do for your salvation. So what is Jesus saying? Okay? This is what Jesus is saying. I want you to catch this. When you close your heart to the poor, Matthew 25, when you refuse to forgive others, Matthew 18, then that proves that that you had closed your heart to me. Jesus' point is not that we earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others, but that when you have received in your heart the forgiveness and the grace of God, and you have been forgiven of your sins, and you are justified by His grace, it cannot but help transform your heart to be merciful to others. The evidence of a forgiven heart. Listen, the evidence of a forgiven heart is a forgiving heart. Out of the mercy and the grace that you have been shown, you will forgive others. Again, the servant Missed the memo. He didn't get it. What Jesus is saying is if you don't forgive, that is a sign that your heart has not been open to me and to my grace. I want you to know something here too, family. Listen, it's not God. It's not the Heavenly Father who is actively doing the torturing in this passage. He's the one who's handed him over to the jailers, to the torturers. God does not have to be actively involved for us to be in anguish and in torment. All he has to simply do is say, you're running that way. If that's what you want, that's what you get. In that case, the unforgiving servant chose to hold on to unmerciful, you know, just hold on to unforgiveness. He was merciless. He wanted to live by justice. And the consequences of that action is now he's in jail. When you stay bitter, When I stay bitter, when I stay angry, I'm in prison. It gnaws at you. It it grows on you. It it, it shows signs of hell and torture. That's what he's saying. Even if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're here today and you love Jesus. You know that your sins have been forgiven. If you refuse to forgive others, you're at least, the very least, showing that you're obstructing the actual effect of the gospel in your life. The anger, the resentments, and the bitterness is controlling you like a poison. We said forgiveness is about releasing, right? If you want to stay in jail, and you want to hold on to your bitterness and anger, if you want to be free, you have to forgive. Hebrews 12, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled one more thing Ephesians 4.26 be angry but don't sin do not let the sun go down on your anger right that's even if you're living in Alaska we said that before right even if it's daylight for six months 
Doesn't mean that. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Angry, don't sin. If you're still angry and the sun's going down and you're holding on to bitterness, you're giving the opportunity, the foothold, that word. You're setting a place for the devil. Going home for lunch, you set up a, you know, place for everybody in your home, set one for the devil. That's what you're doing. By unforgiving and bitterness, you're allowing the enemy into your life to run havoc in your life. Now, at this point, we can conclude that the foundation of forgiveness is understanding the contrast of how deep we owe a debt to God. We talked about what true forgiveness is and is not, and what the consequences of an unforgiven heart really is. But there's one more thing. It doesn't answer how. How do we muster up the strength to do it? What is the real motive? Just pastor, you're, 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 uh, I got stuff inside of me. How am I supposed to do it? How am I supposed to get enough strength? Where is the power? Mark chapter 14, verse 33. Remember the king took up the weight, took up the debt, Absorbed the consequences. It was enormous. I said forgiveness is always substitutionary. And substitutionary forgiveness points us to the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. On the night Jesus was betrayed. Verse 33. He took Peter, James, and John and went to the garden of Gethsemane. Olive grove outside the Mount of Olives. Falls to his knees, then to his face. It says he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Terrified, surprised, he began something he'd never experienced before. He is now beginning to experience and will fully experience it on the cross there in the garden as he contemplated the cross and the pain and the stress was so overwhelming, so immense. Drops of blood flow from his brow and Jesus falls to his knees and cries to his father. If there's any way that this cup be taken from him, that would be, that would be his will. But not my will. Selflessly, selflessly, he said, not my will, but thine be done. Your will be done. Why the struggle? Why the suffering? Why the pain? What's so hard? Is Jesus facing the cross? Is he looking at the anguish of being brutally hung on a cross and thinking of the, the, the physical pain and that's it? I don't think so. I've said this before, many martyrs had gone to death. And even today, as we speak right now, there are martyrs who are being murdered for the cause of Christ, doing it, singing hymns. But here, Jesus is broken. Why? Why was Jesus going to a terrible death with less resolve than others? He's feeling pain and suffering. And why? Because it has to do with substitutionary suffering. The absorption of your sin debt. My sin debt. You see, Jesus was facing and experiencing something no one to this day ever will and has experienced before. And that's the cup. The cup of judgment being poured out on him. So what was happening to Jesus Christ? He was suffering. He was absorbing the sin by facing the wrath of the cup that would be poured out on him. Bill Lane the dreadful sorrow and anxiety that Jesus experienced in the garden was not just shrinking back from the prospect of suffering, uh, physical suffering uh, and death. Thousands of men have faced before with poison peace. It was rather the horror of one who lived holy for the Father and who came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal. He's in the garden praying, but found hell opened up before him and he staggered and tore his breast. The king in this parable is turning the servant over to the torturers. Here we see the father sending the son who voluntarily gave his life, suffered and absorbed the debt, dying in our place. Although the physical suffering I am sure was horrendous, it is not even remotely compared to on the cross in that dark place when God's wrath was poured out on Jesus for our sins. Family, we struggle against sin. We war against sin. We war against our filth, our folly, our stupidity. Our battle is to fight against the gripping desires of evil. Jesus is suffering. Jesus is struggling 
is the very opposite of our struggle. His holiness, his perfect nature, his sinless purity, his total righteousness, his perfect love and obedience to God the Father is now being called to absorb sin. The opposite of what we struggle with. Jesus does not become a sinner, becomes a sin bearer, and therefore he's suffering, he's holy. And he's suffering as he takes our sin, our wrath, our just divine punishment on himself. John MacArthur writes, we struggle because the power of sin is so strong in us. He, Jesus, struggled because the power of holiness was the only power that ever existed in him. End quote. On the cross, Jesus drinks the cup of wrath, suffers so that we might be forgiven through that suffering. When God looked down, he saw his son and the darkness came over the land. That's when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That interrupted period, we don't understand. But Jesus absorbed the wrath and suffered, absorbed the debt that you and I owe. And I'm going to tell you something, family. The greater you and I see the infinite pain, the greater you and I see the suffering and the incalculable cost that your sin and my sin cost the Son of God, the greater your forgiveness will be. Jesus was forsaken because we deserve to be deserted. Jesus endured the darkness, abandoned in judgment and abandonment and judged so that we don't have to. Jesus was forsaken that we might be forgiven. Jesus went through the darkness so that we can have the light of life. He was cursed that we might be blessed. He paid what we could never pay. He suffered the wrath so that we might be brought into the family of God. Forgiveness is not easy. But if we remember how much God suffered and absorbed in his body to forgive you, the gospel, we will find the resources and the ability to forgive others. When we grasp the complete forgiveness we have received through the work of Christ, we will begin to see what we must do. Offer forgiveness to others. Someone once said, Christians are the most forgiven people in the world, and therefore they might ought to be. They ought to be the most forgiving people in the world. I'm going to end with this quote. Jonathan Edwards, 15th century pastor theologian, great book called Religious Affections. When the saint compares his love with his obligation, he realizes how far short his love falls. He also sees not only how little he loves, but also how great is the corruption remaining within him. For sin is falling short of God's demands of us. The more the saints realize their inadequacy, the more they see how vile they are. Thus it appears to them that they are full of sin and not loving Christ enough. Before their eyes, this is the most hateful ingratitude. They can only cover themselves with the righteousness of Christ and allow their own deficiencies, now listen, to be swallowed up. To be swallowed up and hid in the beams of His abundant glory. Be swallowed up in the beams of His abundant love. This communion table reminds us of the suffering of Christ. It was on the cross that Jesus suffered our deserved wrath. His body broken, his body crushed for our sins, his blood shed, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The band will play. Followers of Christ are welcome to come. But I want you to notice right there, there's a cross. There's a wooden cross that's been bolted, strapped to that railing over there. Maybe there's someone, as you're taking communion, that God brings to your heart that you need to do business with, that you need to release, that you need to let go, that you need to absorb, that you need to see the gospel and cry out to God, help me, Lord. I see all my sin. I've seen the great forgiveness that I'm celebrating. I need to let go. There's paper, there's pens, there's a hammer, there's some nails. You got three songs, no rush. Let's, let's deal with, let, let, let's open our heart before the Lord.
If you don't want to deal with the hammers and stuff, we already have papers with, uh, there's nails already on the horizontal beam. You could just write their name and hang it on that nail that's there. If you're so inclined, grab the hammer and nail it. Who is it that God wants you to forgive? Who is it? When you come and you take the cup and you take the bread and you recognize God's great forgiveness to you, that God says, it's time to let go. I'll get all the papers personally and I will destroy them. Maybe just symbolically you say, I'm done. Bam. I'm done. Bam. Or hang it there. I'm done. And I realize that forgiveness is a process. And you may have to go back to this sermon, go back to Matthew 25 and, and, and work through that process. Pastor elders are here. Deacons, deaconesses are here. There are other people that can help you do that. But I will tell you, if you want to be free, you need to forgive. So as the band plays and we are confessing and repenting of our own sin and we're celebrating the body that was given for us, the suffering of the wrath absorbed for you to absorb and to take your sin, who is it that God wants you to let go? We're going to come and take communion. You can have your time there alone if you'd like. I want to leave that for you. Let's pray. Father... The work of your spirit is what we so desperately need. Father, thank you for the gospel. Lord Jesus, thank you for this wonderful parable to help us try to get it. It's not easy. Lord, but we know, we know that we have been forgiven much. You know every single soul in this room. I do not. You know everything they have done and everything that might have been done to them. Lord, we ask that you do a work of forgiveness in our hearts today, this morning, as we celebrate the table, the, the bread the, showing the body, your body, Lord Jesus, broken, the blood, the cup that was poured out for us. Let us remember the cross where judgment of sin, wrath poured out for us. Thank you, Lord. We ask that you would bless our time. Lord, use us mightily. Speak to us deeply in Jesus' name.